Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you had a great week. If you didn't, well, I'm believing you're going to have a good one this week. You know, a loser's attitude is always if only, and a winner's attitude is next time. You got me today? Next time. I'll be smarter. I'll be stronger. I'll be wiser. Next time. Well, anyway, if you're visiting, thanks for coming along to be with us today. If you're watching by live stream somewhere in our nation, welcome aboard. We're going to have a we're going to have a good trip today, and I hope to give you some positive encouragement. Jeremiah chapter 29. I'll get there in just a few moments. How many of you know that life doesn't always go the way we plan? Oh, if you've lived more than three days, you know that's true. I don't care who you are. I thought I was supposed to be married by now. I thought I was supposed to get a promotion by now. I thought I was supposed to have retired. I was supposed to have had children. I was supposed to have achieved this dream. Or, yeah, I wasn't supposed to go bankrupt. I wasn't supposed to lose my job. I wasn't supposed to get divorced. I wasn't supposed to come down with cancer. That wasn't my plan. So what do you do when life doesn't turn out the way you planned? Well, let me read from Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now those are great words, but I'm going to promise you in a few moments you'll find out they're more sobering than you ever realized because they're usually taken out of context. So for a moment, let me just note this. Everyone in this room has plans. I hope you do. I got lots of plans. The only thing keeping me from a couple of them is money. But I got plans, no shortage of dreams. God, God doesn't say this, though. Watch out now, Christians. For I know the plans you have for you. <laughs> Bummer. He says, I know the plans I have for you. And I'm telling you, many times they conflict. Things don't go the way we planned, but if we're following Jesus, they go the way He planned. And that's sometimes a disappointment to me because I had this plan and God interrupts my plan with a better plan. I don't see it that way at the moment, but ultimately I will see it looking back. And throughout the Bible, God's always interrupting somebody's plans. Adam didn't plan on getting created. Noah didn't plan on building an ark, surviving a flood. Abraham didn't plan on becoming the father of a new nation at a hundred. Esther didn't plan on having to stop a genocide while living in exile. Moses didn't plan on having to defy the great Pharaoh. Mary didn't plan on getting pregnant. Not a single story in your Bible begins then some human being had a great plan. <laughs> Didn't happen. I want to give you a couple of thoughts I picked up from Tim Keller's book called The Gospel in Life, The Good News in Life. In the ancient world, all nations worshiped their own gods, little tribal gods with a little g. They had lots of them. And the general understanding of the culture was the better the nation, the more powerful the nation, the wealthier the nation, then the higher status that nation's God achieved. So if your nation was the strongest, the most powerful, the wealthiest, then your God was thought to be the great God. If your nation didn't do well, your God was a weak God. 
So Israel thought the plan, notice, they thought the plan was that they would become the wealthiest, the greatest, the military strongest nation on earth so that the God of Israel would be vindicated above all these other wannabe little gods. That was the plan. But here's what happened. They entered the promised land after going through the wilderness, getting out of Egypt, and for a while things seemed to go well. Then there's the era of the judges. Then they finally get a king, and they only have three. Saul, but that didn't work out too good. Then there was David. He had a few miscues, but a good guy. Then there's Solomon. And Israel thinks, man, this is getting better and better. This chart's just going to keep going up. But it doesn't. After Solomon, the kingdom of Israel splits into two different parts. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They each have different rulers, and they're always in conflict with each other. Then about 712 B.C., a world power arises called Assyria, and they come along and completely destroy the northern kingdom. It ceases to exist. It will never rise again. So now the southern kingdom is all that's left of Israel. Things aren't going according to their plan. A little later, 586 B.C., a new superpower emerges called Babylon under the rulership of Nebuchadnezzar. And they completely obliterate the southern kingdom. All the walled cities of Judah, all the ones of Jerusalem are completely destroyed. The temple is demolished. And Babylon takes the brightest and the best of all the young adults and leaders in Israel, and they carry them into the city of Babylon in exile. So the Israelites are now living in a foreign country, radically different gods, radically different value, completely different way of life, and nobody planned that future for Israel. Exile was the greatest crisis in the history of Israel. And it wasn't just losing homes or losing a dream. It raised a deeper question to these people in that culture who really don't know God too good. And the question was, well, does this God of Israel really exist, or was the whole thing just a myth? So you have these statements in Psalms 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Jerusalem. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion, but how can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? So the great crisis they're facing is, how can we proclaim there is a great God, strong and mighty, omnipotent and good, when our whole plan has been shattered? And the thinking of the day was, if you've got the best God, then your nation should be the richest and the most powerful, and that's going down the tube. So one day a letter comes to the people in exile in Babylon from Jeremiah. He's a prophet from the southern kingdom. He's still living in broken down Jerusalem, and the people have lots of questions. How long will exile last? What should we do? How should we relate to Babylon? And it's in this chaos that Jeremiah writes these words, and they're very controversial, as you'll see in a few minutes. Jeremiah 29, verse 4 through 14. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all I carried away into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what you produce, spread out on Marshall Road, build that youth center and gymnasium. 
marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I haven't sent them. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. And boy, you better understand Israel does not want to hear this. The people were thinking in terms of two strategies when it comes to how you live in Babylon, how you live in exile. The first one, the one Babylon wants, is for Israel to assimilate into Babylon. So the Babylonians are thinking, let's bring them to Babylon. Let's let them see our wealth, our splendor, our glory, adopt our ways, take on our values, live our lifestyles, worship our God, because if we can assimilate you, then you will never be a threat to us and rebel. In other words, if you can't beat them, join them. But if Israel did this, then they're going to lose their identity. They would lose their purpose, and they would lose their relationship with God. It's an easy way, but certainly not a good way. Then there was another strategy for Israel, and this was put forth by a religious group within them. And it was isolate yourself from the Babylonians. Just go to church, sing, I'll fly away, and wait at the rapture bus stop. Have nothing to do with Babylon. These were the false prophets and diviners Jeremiah is talking about in this text. They're telling Israel exactly what the people want to hear. Exile's going to be short. God's going to bring you back home in a couple of weeks. Don't worry about it. Don't have anything to do with Babylon. Isolate from the culture. Have nothing to do with it. Then here comes Jeremiah's message. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. And remember, the titles given to God are never incidental. The Lord Almighty means He's all-powerful. His strength is all-powerful. And He hasn't lost any power, even though your plans aren't working out too good at the moment. The God of Israel, He hasn't forgotten His promise for you, even though you think He has. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Oh, here's another strange one. Who does everybody living in exile in Israel, who do they think carried them into Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> but God's up to something in exile. Four times God says, I carried you into Babylon. I took you there. Leave Nebuchadnezzar out of this. I used him, but I did it. That wasn't your plan. That was my plan. I'm up to something global and total world inclusive. You can't see that far. You don't know what God's up to in your life, some of you. You know, a detour can be God's interstate highway for you. You're sucking your thumb, drinking Maalox and crying, oh, me, God doesn't love me. And God says, wait a minute, my plans for you are good. I'm just interrupting your plan. My plan stands undefeatable, and it's going to be a good plan. Oh, it may not be easy. It may not even be painless. But I know what I'm doing. You said I could have your life. And I'm using you to fulfill my ultimate plan. 
So in other words, he's saying, you're going to be in exile for a long time. Build houses, settle down, make gardens, eat the produce, marry, your son, marry off your sons and daughters. You're going to be here a long time. In fact, this whole generation getting this message, you're never going to leave Babylon. You will live and grow old and die in exile in Babylon. But he says, you can handle it. Because what you really need is not just in physical Jerusalem. I'll be with you in Babylon, just like Jerusalem. So I want you to permeate the world in which you find yourself. I want you to be salt and light in a dark place. Build, plant, marry. In other words, you can worship God in Babylon. The God of Israel is also the God of Babylon and Las Vegas. They just don't know it yet. See, Babylon's plan was to assimilate Israel into their kingdom. God's ultimate plan was to assimilate Babylon into his kingdom. So Babylon, this place of exile, wanted to assimilate Israel. And so one of the deepest lessons of exile is that we can learn to live with God in Babylon where things don't turn out the way we planned. That doctrine is called the indwelling of Christ. If you're a believer, the Lord Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit indwells you right now, wherever you go. You don't have to be in a geographical place for the Lord to be. You can be in prison. You can be captive by the Al-Qaeda or ISIS. God's with you if you're a believer. All right. And, and, and look at what Jesus says in John 14, verse 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. We will come to them and make our home with them. Jesus says He'll do that for you. A little girl who had recently asked Jesus into her life, when asked about, is Jesus in your life, she said, yeah. She put her hand over her heart and she says, I can tell Jesus in my heart because I can feel Him walking around in there. <laughs> Cute. See, Jesus actually wants to make His home in us. The gospel means this indwelling presence of Jesus is available as a free gift of God's grace because on our own, we live away from God life in sin. We're all sinners. And sin is spiritual exile. Sin leads to death in every sense. So Jesus took our exile, our sin, on Himself at the cross so that if anybody would confess their sin and repent and open up their heart, Jesus says, I'll forgive your sin, your guilt, and I'll actually take up residence in your heart. And if you've never invited Him inside the heart, this would be a great day to make the most important choice of your life. Jeremiah told the people, you're going to be in exile a long time, and they're not going to like this. And then he says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. So God says, I want you to pray to God for these people who ruined your life. Not only that, I want you to devote your energies and your skills to bring peace to the people who brought war to you, to bring prosperity to the city that devastated your city. Now this is a radical new way for people to live present in a culture that's foreign to their kingdom. God says, I don't want you to assimilate to the culture you live in. I don't want you to live like them. Walk close to me. But I don't want you to isolate from them either. I want you to become salt and light and permeate that culture. I want you to pray for them. Jeremiah says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city, because when the city prospers, you will prosper. And the word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. And it means lots of things. It means a lot more than hello. It means universal flourishing. It means wholeness and delight. God is saying, hey, believer in Babylon, 
in exile. I want you to engage in work, in business, in the arts, in education, in the political realm, caring for the poor, in technology, how you live with your neighbor, how you handle your finances so that Babylon can flourish as God intended a city to flourish. I want you to live depending on me in such a way Babylonians will look at you and say, well, I don't believe in their God. I don't belong to their religion, but I'm sure glad those Israelites are here in Babylon. Our city would be a poor, darker place if they weren't here. And I want people to say that in the neighborhood you live in, to say about our church, wherever we happen to be. People may not know your God, may not agree with it, may not belong to it, but they said, man, I'm sure glad you people are here. You make a difference. You help people. You're always giving. You're always serving. Thank God you're here. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And he didn't give it to nice people. He gave it to bad people. He gave it to people opposed to him, to governments opposed to him. You guys think if they're not white Republicans and part of the Tea Party, they can't be God's people. That's just the dumbest, narrow-minded thinking I ever thought in my whole life. Elijah probably was like that. He's up there self-pitying, oh, I, only I am left. And God told him, shut up. I've got 7,000 people down there that haven't bowed the knee. And some of them didn't even vote in the election. And by the way, you should vote. It is not a biblical right. It's a civil right. And you could lose it. And almost no nation had the right to vote, not even in Jesus' day. And you do. And we complain and gripe and moan about our government and about leaders. But less than 10% of Christians actually go vote. Did you know that? You ought to be spanked. And you ought to be spanked twice if you just pull one lever. Because you're saying, you're saying in absolute pride and arrogance, everybody on this side is right. You have great people scattered and you have bad people scattered on both sides. So take time. Go slow. Do it right. And don't be regretful. And a month before this election, I'm going to make sure we have voter registration cards outside given to every person. You can tear it up. You can light your cigar with it, whatever you want to do. But I'm telling you, I bet 50% of you are not even registered to vote. And you know what the number one reason is besides just being lazy and compliant? is because I don't want to do jury duty. Well, good. I hope you get a sucky jury one day when you're on trial. <laughs> you want me to be in the jury. You want someone fair. You want someone bi not biased. You want somebody that will judge it only by the facts and by truth and by the evidence. Sure, that's what you want. Well, then get yourself out and vote. Vote your own conscience. Vote your values. But I don't care what group you're in. You agree with me, you should use your responsibility to vote. This is not a paid political announcement, but I'm telling you, <laughs> some of you worry about, well, our country's going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, because Christians just show up, sit down, munch on a spiritual lunch, and go home. They don't vote. They don't register. They don't get involved. They don't want to serve anybody. They just serve themselves. And God says, don't do that. Don't do that. I want you to be present in your Babylon. God cares about Babylon. God cares about Texas. He cares about San Antonio. He cares about Google. He cares about the Cowboys. They need lots of help and prayer. He cares about Apple and Valero, UTSA, University of Incarnate Word, St. Mary's. He cares about school districts and our Babylon. He cares about addicts. He cares about CEOs. And most people, when they come to a Babylon, to a city, it's always to take from it. Did you know when gold was discovered in California, what was it, 1849, I think, which is why the football team's called the 49ers. People moved there by the thousands. I was watching the History Channel. 
but they all came to take gold out. Nobody came to put anything in. People go to California even to this day to take, to get discovered, to get rich, to get tanned, to get pleasure. People go to Hollywood to get famous. People go to Vegas to get rich. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Nobody goes to give anything. Everybody goes to take. It's always about taking, taking, taking. God says, I want a people who will go into Babylon, who will go to the city, and in my name, because I'm with them, give to it instead of just taking out of it. Put a deposit in that city. I mean, help the poor. Help a social program that helps people. Why do we give money to an AIDS foundation? Why do we give money to battered women's shelter? Why do we give to people who are homeless at Haven for Hope? Why do we involve ourselves in all of these programs with young children who are underprivileged and give them backpacks and school supplies? We're giving to our Babylon. We're doing just what Jesus said. I want to be a Jeremiah 29 church. They don't have to be a Christian for me to bless them and help them. In fact, I'll help them think much of my God if I serve them. And so God told them, get involved in that city. Our job is not to stop our culture from sinning. Give me a break. That's Jesus' job. I can't fix you. Only God can fix you. But my job is to point people in our culture to this Jesus who changed my life. Tell your story to people. Don't tell them your doctrine. Tell them your story. This is who I was. This is what was going on. I met Jesus, I was introduced, my life was transformed, and today I'm a productive, healthy, married person, a citizen. I'm not living in my car. I've got a good job. I pay taxes. I have self-esteem restored, and I owe that to this Jesus who saved me and loved me and transformed my life and helped me. This is good news. Tell people that. Tell people the good news. Don't tell them what you're against all the time. You think you're really going to stop the culture from sinning? As far back as 1952, I can remember saying, this is the most important election in our history. Well, welcome to 2014. Somebody lied. <laughs> if we get this Supreme Court elected, Terry, you know that's true. We get this Supreme Court elected, then this will transform our nation. You're never going to make America a Christian nation. There are sinners in it. There will always be sinners around, but you can impact it. You can influence it. You can help shape it. But you can't make it a Christian nation. You can't. Jesus didn't live in a Christian nation. Ezra, Nehemiah, Joseph, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel all lived in pagan cultures in exile. Pagan. And they shaped that country. They shaped the king. They worked with excellence. They did what? They never did what was wrong. But they were so excellent in what they did, they had the heart and the attention of those pagan rulers. And several of them actually said, your God is the God, and anybody that cusses your God will make his house a dunghill. We'll tear it down and put them in the lion's den. They shaped the culture. Why do you have to, why to say to be an effective Christian, I have to live in a Christian environment? Say that to people living in communist China. Tell that to people who are in the Middle East who are not part of a Muslim identity, but a Christian who face execution and beheading for being a Christian. Tell them your silly American ideology. Boy, I tell you what, we're soft, folks. We're really, really soft. These people that changed the world were burned as torches, fed to lions. They were imprisoned. They were beaten. Anybody want to sign up? No, you got a soft American Jesus. And he ain't Republican, and he's not Democrat, and he's not white, and he's not black, and he's not Hispanic. He's, he's God in flesh. Now, our job can't stop a culture from sinning, but we can introduce this culture to Jesus, and we, we certainly have to deal with sin first in our own church. 
Can I say we have a sin problem in this church? <gasps> Shock. Listen to John chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, the real problem of exile is not the church in Babylon. It's when Babylon gets in the church. I'm thinking of a guy in our church who wrestles with sin and some occasionally in attitudes, sometimes in behavior, who wants to look better than they really are, wants to have a better spiritual reputation than he really merits, and of course he wants to remain anonymous. But I'll tell you who it is this morning. It's Jim Williams. No. <laughs> it's me. Oh, excuse me, and it's you. It's every single one of us. Uh-huh. It's standing in the need of prayer. Oh, Lord. we got a sin problem. Sometimes in conferences, I am such a naughty boy. I mean, I'll, some guy will get up, be self-boasting, self-promoting, gag me, so audaciously sickening and ugly, just terrible. And I'm thinking, what's so weird is he's not so self-aware. I bet everybody in the room can smell what's coming out of him, except him. And my next thought is, I wonder how often something like that could be true of me. And people see it and smell it, but I don't. Or you. <laughs> huh? See? When God is at work in a community of people, I mean, when He's really at work, conviction of sin becomes a real deep reality, not condemnation, conviction. Confession and repentance get practiced with regularity. People get humble. A spirit of self-righteousness and judgmentalism and getting puffed up evaporates. Let me tell you things you learn when you get old. When I was young, memorized the Scripture, had my Bible down, knew everything, didn't do this, didn't do that, didn't do this, self-righteous. Let me tell you what age does to you. It makes you recognize your own depravity. And you get to the place you say, I stink. And then you appreciate grace and mercy. That's why this, uh, Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. Uh, I know in my flesh, he says, dwells no good thing. Some of you hadn't come there yet. But life will help you discover that. Yep, it will. Tim Keller writes, quote, one of the things that will happen when you really take seriously living in your Babylon where you actually get to know people outside the church. You'll get to know some people who don't believe in God, but who are much kinder, much wiser, much better, and more generous than you. That can be very unsettling. See, a gospel that is really a gospel of grace, based on the work of Jesus on the cross, and not our good works, will humble you so deeply, it'll drain you of judgmentalism and superiority or else you'll cling so deeply to your own sense of pride and superiority, you will reject a gospel of grace, and you'll become a Pharisee. But the longer I live, how, I just I realize I need grace and mercy, or I'll never have God's favor. And the older you get and the more you live life, the more you recognize how wonderful and gracious God's been. How can I, how can I beat you up? How can I feel superior to you? So you can't see inside of me. And if you're out there really misbehaving, I can see that. But you, you can't see a lot of misbehaving that goes on on the inside. And God does. He knows the thought and intent of every heart. I just don't know how you could sit at Summit and be a self-righteous, judgmental believer unless you were raised in some Christian Al-Qaeda community. 
that says, because I don't get drunk, don't smoke, didn't have an affair, I never looked at anything ugly or naughty or nasty, and I've never been drunk, then I am superior to all these other people. And if you do one thing that I don't agree with, then I will leave you, reject you. What happened to you? Just wait. You got a big, gooey, ugly Babylon coming. You just wait, and you'll cling to that cross, and you'll appreciate that mercy and grace of Jesus. And because you yourself have been broken, and you know that pain, and you know the fact that God loved you unconditionally, raises you up, restores you, you can't help but feel mercy and love towards people that are still maybe a little bit far from God, that aren't where you are. But they're drawn. God, the, the love of God never fails people, and it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. And they were always drawn to Him. And Jesus didn't isolate Himself in a synagogue. He was out there eating and having parties with all the unsaved pimps and prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. I'm sorry. I can't believe He is over there with those people. Let me tell you, I told you last week, I'll go anywhere. I'll pray in a Buddhist temple. I'll pray on Jesus' name. But I'll go to the Democrats, and I'll pray over their uh, deal, and I'll pray what I would pray for a Republican or a Bible-believing Christian or no one. I'm going to pray the will of God. I prayed at an open house in Dominion at a big affair with about 250 uh, loan officers, business people, bank executives, real estate agents, and all. I want to be everywhere. Why not? That's what we're supposed to be out there. And if you, if you, if you live so rigid that you can't live in a culture that you, you're in the world, but you're not part of it. Their values don't shape me. I want to shape theirs. But I want to say, what a friendly person to be with. What an encouraging person to be with. I have a bigger shot at assimilating them into the kingdom of God than by isolating and just judging. And I'm just reading the Bible, so if it gets me in trouble, it just gets me in trouble. So let me tell you when it happens. Whenever, wherever you go, Jesus goes with you if you're a believer. Anytime somebody's kind or helpful to a stressed out young mom, a little shalom breaks out. When you're at the office and you take a little e extra effort to care for a customer, you go the extra mile. When you ask God to help you at work with a better attitude for His glory, a little shalom breaks out in your office. When somebody is patient with a clerk, when somebody volunteers to give time or resources to an overworked classroom teacher. When somebody goes to pray at the Veterans Center for a wounded veteran, when you in Jesus' name clothe the poor, when you seek to make some social program in our city better in helping people, then we are becoming a Jeremiah 29 church. We're living in exile in our Babylon, but we're affecting it. We're serving it. We're giving into it. And yeah, when it's hard, and when you get hit, and when you suffer, and when you get disappointed, don't be surprised. Welcome to Babylon. <laughs> Come on in. The water's fine. Dr. Keller writes, exile is the normal condition of the human race. Anybody notice we don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore? That's the consequences of sin a long, long time ago. And maybe what we should seek for is not for God to get me out of exile, but for God to come close to me in my exile, because God's always up to something. See, I grew up with the crowd singing, I'll fly away. The rapture in 10 minutes. Now, I don't know when the Lord will return. He will return. I don't know when. But evidently, all the guys that wrote books and made lots of money who are now dead are wrong. Right? Now I got grandchildren, let alone children. One great prophecy teacher, he's still on TV. The guy must be 120. I don't know. But he, he told me I'd never pay for a college education for my children or a wedding. I wish I could send him a bill. 
say that's the wrong attitude. Getting people focused on leaving instead of invading our culture. He says, when you pray, pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. And if you just stay in a cocoon wanting to leave, then you don't do anybody any good. Everybody loves a friend. If Joseph could solve the problems of Egypt, he's endeared to Pharaoh. If you could solve the problems of the city council or the mayor, he wouldn't care what religion you were. He would find that source of wisdom comforting and strengthening and valuable. That's how you get influence. You don't get influence with a picket sign. You solve a problem. You do it through wisdom. That's exactly how these people did it. I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, they didn't live in a Christian environment, but they shaped it. They affected it. They changed it in many cases. Some of you believe we don't get a Christian president, we're going to hell. The whole world's going to hell anyway without Jesus. What are you talking about? <laughs> okay. Well, the crowds are wild here, folks. Yeah. Call EMS. I see dead people. It was in exile. Israel learned to say, well, guys, I guess our plan wasn't God's plan. The death of a dream can be the most painful thing in the world for all of us. But out of the ashes of that dream that's dead was born another dream. What if the people of God, what if God's ultimate plan for the kingdom of God wasn't just racial or natural or a physical nation? What if that was the model, but it went way beyond that so that the kingdom of God in God's plan was going to be global? It was going to be a spiritual kingdom available to anybody, anywhere, anytime, regarding, regardless of race or gender or nationality. See, some in Israel, not many, but some prophets started to dream of what it might be like one day, not just if Israel was a great nation, but if the redemptive power of God could come to redeem the whole broken earth. And let the earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And it was in exile, these little communities of Hebrew people were spread around the ancient world. God spread them out everywhere. They didn't know what's going on. Centuries later, they would become synagogues. So they could be receptor sites. So God could touch a brilliant bilingual scholar, Pharisee named Paul, interrupt him on the road to Damascus, use him to write 75% of the New Testament, and to kick off the spread of Christianity in churches by going to synagogue to synagogue who would hear the story of this man Jesus who knew all about exile, because that was primarily his life. When he became human, the incarnation itself was a voluntary exile from heaven. And then when Jesus was an infant, Herod tried to kill him. He spent the earliest part of his life in Egypt in exile. And throughout most of his ministry, he was in exile. He said, birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes in the ground, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And his final steps were to carry a cross outside the gates of Jerusalem. See, crucifixion by law had to happen outside the walls of the city, communicating to everybody that this crucified one was rejected. He's dying in exile. And that's why it says in Hebrews 13 about Jesus. So Jesus suffered outside the city gate, hated, reviled, mocked. So he suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through the shedding of his own blood. And then one last step into exile. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he dies. And all of his followers who had all these plans, misconceptions, their dreams die with him. Well, I thought... I thought he was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. I thought we were going to launch our own army. 
I thought we were going to take the sword and destroy all these pagans and heathens. And Jesus said, that was your plan. That wasn't my plan. I'm going to take it another way. And out of the ashes of those dead dreams rises another dream of a resurrection gospel that would reconcile all sinners to God. That was the plan from the foundation of the earth, but people just didn't know it in full. We only see in part. They didn't see the ultimate plan of God. You and I live in exile right here in Babylon, so we die to our own little self-preoccupied plans and become part of God's greater plan to redeem His world. I know the plans I have for you, and you, and you, and you, and me says the Lord. They're not your plans. They're probably not easy plans. They're surely not pain-free plans. They're just Jesus' plans. And His plans are the hope of the world. Maybe you had a disappointment. Maybe you broke off an engagement. Maybe a business partner betrayed you. You didn't see that coming. And it's left you in, it left you in a financially untenable position. And God says, I saw that. You didn't see it. Here was your plan, but I know the plans I have for you. I don't care what befalls you. I have a good plan for you. Trust me. You still have to trust me, or else you'll go into a fetal position, suck your thumb, drink Maalox, and cry and cry that God doesn't love me and God isn't fair. Excuse me. You said you loved Him. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. And he says, my plans for you are good. I'm sorry you were captivated so much by your own plan. I had to interrupt it to get my plan done. Now, that helps me because I get disappointed. I get let down. I get frustrated. I feel disappointment just like you. Well, I didn't see that. Well, I didn't count on that. And I go back and renew my mind like you should do with Scripture. I know the plans I have for you. They're good and they're not evil, and nothing can stop it. So why don't you just shape up, put your pacifier away, raise your head, and let's get this thing going, because you're never going to know what it is until you follow me completely, that I've got a good plan for you. And that breakup one day is going to be the best thing that ever happened to you. Or breaking out and failing in this business is going to put you over here, and it's going to be the best deal. Joseph, I'm sorry, but kidnapping, attempted murder, selling you into slavery, putting you into Poniver's house, then going to jail, falsely accused in a court trial with all the bloggers, and then out of prison to have dreams fulfilled by a baker and a butler to bring you before Pharaoh to be a ruler of a nation. That was my plan, but you didn't see it coming, did you? <laughs> So I'm telling you, it ain't fun, but I don't feel like I'm a victim because I just have to say, God, if you think that's the best plan, then I'm going to say what Jesus said in the Garden of Eden. I mean, in the Gethsemane Garden, not my will, thy will be done. For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit SummitSA.com and click on Bookstore.